Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you turn, let me um, welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are joining us for our, our, our study of God's Word. And also our friends in Arco, Idaho. And I was just telling them stories uh, about you. Let me tell a couple more Arco stories. Uh, Kimberly and I are coming in late. We're driving up from California with the kids. And we're going to get in about midnight to the only hotel, motel in town, the DK Motel in Arco, Idaho. So we're going to get in about midnight on Saturday night so I can preach the next day on Sunday morning. So Kimberly calls ahead and says, look, is there any problem with us coming in? We're coming in late. And they said, oh, no, no. Uh, the, the motel, the person at the head desk of the motel said, oh, no, no, no problem. Uh, we'll just leave it unlocked and the key on the desk in the room. And Kimberly and I turned to each other and said, we're not in Los Angeles anymore. You know, just, hey, coming in late, we'll leave the door open, key over here, help yourself to the refrigerator. You know, I just, it was just amazing. And, and then it was funny, when I got up to preach there, they always, I'd never preached there live, it had always been by video. And so when I got up to preach, this gentleman goes back and turns all the lights off. And he yelled out, we don't know what you look like in the light. It's only in the dark that we're used to you. And it was a joke. It was totally a joke. But uh, that's his job. His job is there a regular worship service, then he goes back, turns off the lights, and then the, uh, the video comes on on whoever is preaching that particular Sunday. So just had a great, great time there. And then those in Hangar in Montana, just what a phenomenal thing God is doing there in Montana. It's just so, so cool to see how God has used that church. And, and uh, we had this great outreach. It was kind of um, country rock uh, concert with Rihanna and uh, with some Christian music list, shared some in it and then me sharing as well. You know, I go really well with country rock. It's just natural for me to get up and speak in the middle of that. It just fits perfectly. And, uh, and then invited them back to the service the next day and just had a great, great time. And so we praise God for what he is doing there. Wonderful, wonderful. But now we're going to continue a series that we took a break from after Easter. Uh, this is a series on the book of Acts called Rooted in Purpose. And between January and Easter, we covered Acts chapters 1 through 19. January through Easter, and now in the five Sundays in August, I'm going to finish this series with Acts chapters 20 through 28 we will be doing this month. Now, let me mention one more thing before we get into our study, and that is tonight. If you look at the end of your study outline, you'll see that I'm starting a new series at uh, the hub at Purpose Church in Claremont tonight at 5 o'clock. It's a series called Prescription Bible. And what I'm doing is I'm looking over my 34 years as a pastor and picking out 12 areas that I see people personally struggle the most, including myself. And the first one, and then we're going to look at a Bible prescription, biblical principles for dealing with each of those 12 uh, areas over the next 12 uh, Sunday nights. We will deal with those 12 areas as I'll share the prescription from God's word as to how to deal with each one of those. And the one we're going to start out with is anger. Because I see so many people, you know, struggle in the area of anger. We feel uncomfortable with it as Christians. You'll be amazed as we study tonight how it, it's, anger is a gift from God. It's a blessing from God. It is often a good thing to be angry. And yet when it gets out of control, it can get us in trouble. And there are concrete, practical, biblical principles to how to deal with the anger in our lives. We need to deal with it. If we turn it inwardly, that'll lead to discouragement and depression. If we turn it outwardly, it'll damage our relationships. One interesting factoid, just to give you a little hint of tonight. Research shows that on average, women 
get angry at other people than men do. Now, men get plenty angry at other people, let me tell you. But on average, women get angrier at other people than, than men do. Now, men, lest you enjoy that, just a moment. Men, on average, get angrier at inanimate objects than women do. Okay. Today, we're going to talk about the four traits of well-timed words. We pick it up where we left off uh, just before Easter with the end of Paul's third missionary journey. It says in verse 17 of chapter 20, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now, he shares with them these beautiful, powerful words, and they're powerful for three reasons. It's not just what we share, but it's how we share and when we share it. How many of you found that true at work? How many of you have found that true in your marriage? It's not just what you share, but uh, how you share it, the tone of voice you use, and when you pick. How many pick the right spot to ask the boss for a raise? The right time is not when the earnings report has come out and they've just lost a bunch of money. The right time is when the earnings report comes out and they've just had huge profits in the last quarter. That's when you ask the boss for a raise. Uh, in, in your marriage, you know there are certain times when you bring up something and certain times when you do not bring up something. I love uh, this verse. It says, Proverbs 27, verse 14. If a man loudly blesses his neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. And that's great. He's got the what right. I mean, it's a blessing after all. What could be wrong with that? But the how is wrong. He does it loudly. And the when is wrong. He does it early in the morning. Kimberly always complains because on Sunday morning, I get up real early and I'm just wired, wired for Sunday morning and I bang around the room and I make all kinds of noise. And she says, can't you be quieter in the morning? I love you, but when you're loud on Sunday morning, I count it as a curse and not as a, uh, and not as a blessing. Reminds me of another story. A man and his wife were having some problems at home and were giving each other the silent treatment. Suddenly the man realized that the next day he would need his wife to wake him up at 5 a.m. for an early morning business flight. Not wanting to be the first to break the silence and lose, he wrote on a piece of paper, please wake me at 5 a.m. He left it where he knew she would find it. The next morning, the man woke up only to discover it was nine in the morning and he had missed his flight. Furious, he was about to go and see why his wife hadn't wakened him when he noticed a piece of paper by the bed. The paper said, it is 5 a.m., wake up. And so... So sometimes it's being too loud and sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's being silent. Proverbs 15, 23, a man finds joy in giving an apt reply and how good is a timely word. Number one, a word is well-timed when it is built on a long-term relationship. Verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly in worship services like this and from house to house in adult Sunday school classes or Bible study groups or life groups or rooted groups or small groups. He taught them publicly and then house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. A character trait of a well-timed, powerful word is that it is built on a long-term relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do it even if we have a short-term relationship. Any time is a good time for a well-timed word, but it will have more power 
the more long-term and the deeper and healthier the relationship is with that person. Now, let me give you a heads up, and it's not much of a heads up because we do this every year uh, as the fall gets here. I will be talking about uh, certain weeks, uh, your oikos, the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15 people in your sphere of influence, people at work or at school or in your family or in your neighborhood. And I'll say such and such is coming up, and this fall, either share Jesus with them yourself or bring them to a place where we can share uh, Jesus with them. And so I'll say things like, you know, if your neighbor or friend lives in Rancho Cucamonga, well, this new satellite location will be, this new venue service location will be a great fit for them. Or maybe I'll talk about a series that we're doing in September, which is very cool. Uh, we've got this neat thing going on with the pastors of Pomona. We met together, and we had seen where they had done this in Austin, Texas, and we're going to do the same thing here in Pomona. And that is where all the pastors in town, or as many as we can get on board with this, will be preaching the same sermon series for seven weeks. Isn't that cool? And they did that in Austin, where almost all the churches in Austin, Texas, were all preaching the same seven subjects to the country community. It was almost like preaching Christ to the community in these seven topics. And we're going to do the same thing. We've got like 40 or 50 churches already on board. We're hoping to get every church in Pomona that will be doing this same series. We're going to advertise that in the community, that we are all with one voice speaking to our city uh, for those seven weeks. And so I'll encourage you to, to bring a friend to that. Or maybe the grand piano event that's in September. Uh, that'll be something I'll say, hey, if you've got somebody in your oikos that would connect with that, bring them to the grand piano event. Or the hallelujah party in, in October. Or the Christmas events all through December. Now let me give you a hint. Your invitation will be better received if you're working on that relationship now. Now's the time to build it strong, to serve that person, to show love to that person, to build, to spend time with them so they won't feel like you're just a, a, they're just a number that you're inviting to this particular event. Now, don't get me wrong. Even if you have no contact, it's still good to invite people. But it'll come more effectively if it is built on a long-term relationship. Work on that relationship now so that when the opportunity comes, it'll be better timed. Number two, a word is well-timed when it is based on true motives and people can sense our motivation. Do we really uh, do uh, share with them out of true love and concern and compassion for them or is it from false motives? Um, I heard a story about a guy who reads in the newspaper about a 2008 uh, Lamborghini for sale uh, for $5.00. And he's like, what's up with that? And he says, he thought, you know, he wasn't thinking about it. He could afford a Lamborghini, but he thought, this is impossible to not go check out. So he goes and he talks to the lady and this thing is in mint condition. I mean, this, this guy was obviously the apple of somebody's eye and he just was, was in perfect condition. It had been well cared for. It looked like it was brand spanking new. It was just a tremendous uh, vehicle. And he says, this is really for $5? She goes, sure. So he pulls a $5 bill out of his pocket, uh, gives it to her, and she gives him the keys. And he says, why are you doing this? And she goes, well, uh, my husband ran off with a woman to Mexico. And he emailed me a couple of days ago and said, sell the Lamborghini for whatever you can get for it and, and mail me the money, uh, you know, from the sale. <laughs> so, so that was not from the best of motives that she was doing that. Uh, First Chronicles 28, and you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him wholeheartedly, devotion and with a willing mind. 
For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. Proverbs 16, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. You know, why did God use Paul in such a powerful way? Well, obviously it was the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, the, of course, the, uh, the main reason. But what else is going on there? Because, you know, it, it's interesting with Paul. He was a great writer. Everybody will agree to that. I mean, even secular historians will say that the book of Romans is one of the most powerfully written treatises in all of human history. Tremendous writer. But do you know there are hints that he wasn't the greatest preacher face-to-face? He was a much better writer than he was a preacher. I mean, the Corinthians even said, oh, he's very weighty in his letters, very powerful when he writes. But face-to-face, he's not all that much. As a matter of fact, earlier in chapter 20, just before the passage we're looking at, this uh, young man, Eutychus, fell asleep. Now, we've, we've all done that. You may be falling asleep right now, even as I speak, you know. But Eutychus fell and died. Now, I want you to know, I have never killed somebody with a sermon. I, you know, I may have put you asleep, but I never killed anybody. Paul killed them. They got so bored, they fell asleep and fell down. Now, he went over and prayed over them. He came back to life again, which is a really good illustration. I'm telling you, everybody was awake from that point on. But he was, in, in seriousness, he was not considered maybe the greatest preacher. So why was it God used him so? much. Well, like I said, it was the Holy Spirit, but also I believe it's because people sensed that his motives were pure, and he had a clear conscience before God. You know, he reminds me of a contemporary example, Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham in his prime, like in the 70s, 60s, and 70s, you know, at that time I could have probably named a couple dozen preachers that I thought were better preachers than Billy Graham, and yet he was used in such a powerful way. And I believe it was because of these two things, his motives. People could sense his sincerity. He had pure motives, and he also had a clear conscience. I've heard all kinds of stories about how he was ruthless in keeping his personal purity. Uh, just a couple of them, they're a little unusual, but one of them was if he was um, standing in an elevator and the elevator door opened and there was a young woman in there by herself, he would step back and not get on that elevator until he came on with a crowd later on. I do know that he has never personally been in a room with a member of the opposite sex other than his family his entire life. His entire adult ministry, he has never allowed himself to be in a room with someone. And so, and so he has just been ruthless at protecting his purity. And so he is this clean vessel with a clear conscience and pure motivation through which then the Holy Spirit flows in a powerful way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. James says, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on yourselves. Pure motives, a clear conscience, leads to an effective, well-timed word. I want to take a little bit of a tangent and talk about the conscience for a few minutes, and then we'll come back and, and finish things up. The conscience. We have a conscience even before we follow Christ. Because of the next page of your study outline, because of what we call common grace, every person made in the image of God, uh, there is a certain conscience or law of God that is written on our hearts. And even before we open our hearts to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have a conscience. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 2, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, did not have God's word, the Old Testament, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts 
their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. You know, one of the great proofs of God is that this law of God, this morality, is written on our hearts. It's so hard for an atheist to explain why we have this conscience, why it's so hard for an atheist to explain why we applaud a Mother Teresa and why we condemn an Adolf Hitler. I mean, apart from God, Adolf Hitler should be defended. After all, he was just the ultimate survival of the fittest, where he would wipe out the parts of the population he deemed not his perfect image of what it should be and try to improve his image of what the race, the master race, should be. Uh, you actually should applaud with survival of the fittest, Adolf Hitler. And yet we all know in our hearts he was wrong and Mother Teresa was right. And yet there's no way apart from God to explain that. They always say, how do you win an argument about morality with an atheist? You steal his cell phone is what you do. And as soon as you steal his cell phone, I'm not saying really do that, but as soon as you steal his cell phone, he says, that's wrong. Why did you do that? Well, I was stronger than you. Or I was sneaky and I stole it when you, you weren't looking. Why is that wrong? I simply am using my advantage of my brains or stealth or power or strength to take something from you. And yet we know in our hearts that that thing is wrong. You know, I believe that's what's going on in our nation right now with the whole revelation of these horrific Planned Parenthood videos that are coming out right now. Somehow, our nation has turned a blind eye to this practice. And yet, when the light of day is shown on the attitudes and cavalier sipping wine and eating salad while bargaining for the price of baby parts and going through uh, the parts of a baby and, and proclaiming mockingly, it's a boy, you know, just like we do when a baby comes, it's a girl, it's a boy, it's a boy. There's something in our hearts, now that we see it in all of its ugliness, we know in our hearts this thing is not right. This thing is wrong. And, 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 and I believe it's a tipping point, it's a turning point for our nation because we see this and we know in our hearts this, this is not right. It is, it is written on our hearts right now. In our family, we are reigning grandchildren. I'm telling you, they're just falling out of the sky. Last year, we had three of our adult children get married in a five-month period. And now it's crazy how things follow after that. And now we have three babies coming in a six-month period. And it's just we had grandchildren coming out all over the place. We had, we had, uh, we had dinner with uh, Andrew and, and Jessica up in Palmdale, uh, where he's an air traffic controller. And, and we had dinner with them Friday, Friday night. And my little daughter-in-law, she is this tiny little thing. And she's got this basketball right here. It's just like huge, I'm telling you. And she's still got a month to go. I don't know what's going to stop her from just bop, you know, and that baby's going to come. And to look at her, you know, I don't need technology to know. That's a life there to be protected. But I'm telling you, this is one of the areas where technology, it's the one area of American life where morality is increasing, is in this area. Do you know that the younger generation is more pro-life than my generation, the baby boomer generation. And I think it's because of technology, because everybody's on Facebook showing the baby at 12 weeks, showing it at 20 weeks, showing it at 30 weeks, you know. It's just all out there. And after a while, you look at that and say, this thing is a life, because it's written, written on, our, on our hearts um, that it is a life. My daughter, Abby, 
as a legislative director for um, very influential congressman. He's a chairman of space science and technology, a chairman of a congressional committee, and she's his legislative director. And, and the two of them, along with others in Congress, have been working to defund Planned Parenthood, and she's been involved in that battle. And, and she said to me the other day, she goes, you know, Dad, you'd think people, when all this came out, would own it if they truly believed it. They'd say, yeah, it is just fetal tissue. So what? We're mining it or harvesting it for, for beneficial purposes. What's the big deal? No, they start to back away from it. She goes, why? Because on our hearts, we know it's wrong. We know it's wrong. Or they know, even if their hearts are so seared, they know that for most people in America, when they see this, they know in their hearts that it's wrong. And how our priorities, we may know in our hearts it's wrong, but how our priorities are, are mixed up. Uh, you know, I read that this one major media outlet devoted more attention to the death of Cecil the lion in the last 24 hours than they did on this issue of the Planned Parenthood videos over the last two or three weeks. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all against the killing of Cecil the lion, so don't, don't write me any letters on that. That was a terrible thing. But come on, come on. More attention on that, more outrage about that than this other thing shows that even if God's morality is written on our hearts, we still have our priorities so mixed up. The word here for conscience is the Greek word sunitesis, which literally means to know together. It's used 30 times in the New Testament. It, it means when our thoughts and our actions are in agreement with our beliefs. Now, the conscience of a Christ follower has a heightened sense of reality. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, this is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. See, the Old Testament sacrificial system was unable to clear our conscience. But what the Old Testament sacrificial system was unable to do, Christ has done. Hebrews chapter 10, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure waters. What our own human effort could not do. What the Old Testament sacrificial system could not do. What our own religiosity could not do. Christ on the cross has done. And that's why we remember it on a regular basis. And in a few minutes, we'll share the Lord's Supper. And everybody here is welcome to share in the Lord's Supper. You just need to know that you've opened up your heart to be sprinkled with the shed blood of Christ on the cross for the cleansing of our conscience. You can leave this place with a clean conscience. You say, Glenn, I don't know if I've done that or if I'd like to do that today. How would I go about doing it? On the next page, on the upper left-hand corner, the next page after your study outline, upper left-hand corner, you'll see what the Bible says about the steps to take to do this. And then a little suggested prayer. And if you've prayed that prayer or something like it, there's nothing magical in the exact wording of that prayer. It simply summarizes what the Bible teaches on this subject as how to receive Christ and have our conscience cleansed. And uh, so if you've prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you'd like to do it today, today could be your day. Uh, to receive Christ, to walk out of here with a clear conscience and to show that outwardly by receiving the bread, which is his body, and the cup, which is his blood, and proclaiming that he, we have been cleansed. Uh, it says, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The Bible talks about three types of consciences. Number one is a weak conscience. 
But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Now, this is where we do the right things for the wrong reason, okay? Uh, The Pharisees are the picture of this, where we do the right thing following God, but we do it to show off to other people, or we do it to earn our salvation. So a weak conscience is doing the right things, but doing it for the wrong reason. I'm going to earn my way into God's good favor, or I'm going to do it to show off in front of others. And like I said, the Pharisees were an example of this. And, And usually Christians with the weak conscience, they're the most critical of other Christians, A Christian with a weak conscience doing the right things but for the wrong reasons, not out of love for Christ and a desire to please him and to honor him, they tend to be the most critical of other people. Number two is a seared conscience or a burned over or a calloused conscience. This is where we do the wrong things for the wrong reasons or doing the wrong things for the right reason. You say, Glenn, what's up with that? Well, that's where, for example, if I lie to encourage someone, Um, uh, that's a seared conscience. Or I do an unethical business uh, deal in order to help my family. It's for the right reasons I want to help my family, but I do the wrong thing, but for the right reasons. I believe this is some of what's going on with regard to Planned Parenthood. I believe that that some of them uh, have their consciences seared in the sense that they think they're doing a thing for the right reason, that this is a solution to a problem. This is a way to help somebody to solve a problem but they end up having a seared conscience and doing the wrong things for the right reasons. So a seared conscience, either are wrong things for the wrong reasons or wrong things for the right reasons. Ephesians 4 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires. But then our goal is to have a good conscience. Paul writes to Timothy, My son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. A good conscience is doing the right things for the right reasons. My friend Tom Mercer writes, a good conscience clarifies, confesses, and clears the air. First John chapter 1, if we confess our sins He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, Paul says in verse 24, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. What we need is what I call a bunker-busting conscience. Remember the old, the missiles that uh, they hit a bunker and they, they bust it, they, they can do it underground. If there's an underground enemy facility, a bunker-busting bomb can get underneath the surface and destroy that thing. Well, that's what we need our conscience to be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Where we get beyond our actions to our words and we go beyond our words to our thoughts and beyond our thoughts to our attitudes and beyond our attitudes to our motives. Paul writes in verse 26, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. He shared Christ with pure motives. And so he said, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. Let me share something just heavy for a moment. You know, my goal as your pastor, for myself, for my own life, and for you, is for each of us, and I've said this many, many times, our ultimate purpose is to go to heaven and to take our oikos with us. And that's the goal that we should each have. But 
If our oikos, some in our oikos, choose not to go with us, here's the backup goal. That if any of them do not stand with us in God's presence in heaven, that we can say we are innocent of the blood of any of them. That is, it was not from any lack of effort on our part. I want us to stand as a church family in God's presence. And our ultimate dream and goal is that we all, that we be there and that we bring our, all of our oikos with us. But if any of our oikos choose not to follow us to heaven, may it not be because we failed to try. Will it not be because we didn't share? Will it not be because we didn't do everything within our power to get them to a place where the gospel could be shared with them so that we can stand before God and say we are innocent of the blood of any of you? And that is our goal as a church, to share Christ or to invite people to where Christ can be shared with them, to do everything within our power so that by the grace of God they stand with us, but if not, we are innocent of their blood. Paul writes, I have not coveted anyone's silver, gold, or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He writes to the Thessalonians, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put a mask on to cover up greed. God is our witness. And then number three, a word is well-timed when it tells the whole truth. He says in verse 27, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And I love this because he just got off of a ship, so he's thinking sailor illustrations is what he's thinking. And so literally in the Greek, this means I have not trimmed my sails in preaching the truth to you. Isn't that great? Gets off a ship, he's there with the elders, sharing with them, and he says, I've not trimmed my sails in preaching truth to you. I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Uh, And then number four, a word is well-timed when it warns of danger. Verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And then Jude, verses 22 and 23, tells us the three categories of people within our oikos that need to be warned. Category number one is be merciful to those who doubt. There are some within your oikos that just have legitimate doubts and and, and struggles. And we need to be merciful. We need to be tender and humble and gracious and kind, merciful to those who doubt, lovingly woo them to Jesus. Uh, But then there's a second group, and that is those that are dangerously close to the edge of turning their backs on Christ. And those we need to confront in love, save others by snatching them from the fire. There are some within our oikos that we need to snatch 
from the fire. They are dangerously close to turning their back on Christ. And we need to earnestly try to snatch them back from the fire. And then number three are those that have already gone over the edge. And yes, we need to reach them. But in the same way, when you're reaching out of a lifeboat to pull in a drowning person, make sure that they don't pull you in so that you drowned as well. Make sure that you are influencing them more than they are influencing you. And so number three, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Reach out to them, but be so careful that you don't fall in with them, but instead you are pulling them into the boat rather than them pulling you uh, into the water. By the grace of God, we as a church family, this fall and until Jesus returns, will do everything in our power, everything in our power, to make sure that we've received Christ so that we are on our way to heaven and to see that our oikos comes with us so that we have no innocent blood on our hands. And by the grace of God, we will do this as a church family until Jesus returns. And all God's family said, amen.